Hello and welcome to Can I Ask You a Personal Question Uncut. This is a sister podcast, The Normal Episodes, where every fortnight we'll bring you the raw, unedited conversations with our interviewees. This week, Dan and Will speak to PR guru Andrew Block, co-founder of public relations agency Frank PR, which until last year he led as a managing partner. This podcast is unedited, so a warning that there may be one or two swear words at some points in the podcast. If you're enjoying our episodes, please let us know by leaving a review and a five-star rate onto the podcast. Enjoy! Here we go. Hi, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. How are you? Very well, thank you. Good, good. Where are you? In Canada? Uh, I'm in Vancouver, yeah. Dan's in London. Are you, are you in London? I'm in London, yeah. Yeah. In London. Yeah, not as glamorous as Vancouver. We've got the sunshine flowing in through the wind day there. He's really showing it off. I know. I know. <laughs> it is daytime, <laughs> but there's not much sun. Vancouver, I spoke to him earlier. He was walking on the beach. So. <laughs> oh, very nice. So where did you where did you grow up and what was your... What was your um, what was your journey to uh, to founding Frank when you were 26 when you founded it, weren't you? So what, what what did you do before that? What were your first 26 years like? Oh, wonderful! I <laughs> 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 oh, um, all right. So are we starting now? Yeah, sure. So my I sorry, I'll start again. So I went to university in Manchester and I studied management science, which was sort of a combination of business, law, accountancy, media. Um, I originally wanted to go into advertising, but found myself somehow doing a work placement at a PR agency called Lynn Franks, which was pretty famous agency in the 80s and 90s. It was the agency that Absolutely Fabulous was based on. And mm. It was a crazy place. Um, mm. That's where I met a guy called Graham Goodkind, who was the MD at the time. Um, a few years into my journey at Lynn Franks, the agency actually sold to a bigger um, global agency called Ketchum. And Graham went off and at the time um, set up an internet company, which was the fashionable thing to do at that period. And I stayed on at Ketchum, went on to head up their sport and entertainment department. And a couple of years into that, Graham said to me, do you fancy setting up a PR agency together? And I didn't really feel ready. I only had about five years experience. And I said, look, I like the idea, but give me a bit of time. I feel like I want to get a few more years under my belt. And Graham said, you know, I don't think you're ever going to feel ready. Let's just do it. And cutting a long story short, we set up Frank and the idea of the agency was open, honest, no bullshit. And those were the values we founded on. We took the agency from well zero and no clients through to becoming a sort of seven, eight million pound agency. And now, you know, 20 years on, we're one of the most successful consumer PR agencies in the UK. Um, I, earlier this year, decided I wanted to take a step back from the day to day. Um, the agency was in a good place, had good clients, doing great work, good people. So I stepped back into a non-exec role and then I founded um, what is imaginatively called Andrew Block and Associates, which is a consulting service that is designed to help 
any agency from whatever form of marketing, so whether that be PR, advertising, media, digital, um, helping them grow, find new clients, create great work. And then on the client side, helping clients find the right agencies for them in what can be quite a confusing landscape at mm. times. And then sort of over and above that, I'm doing a few advisory roles, working with some high growth tech startups. I'm also doing some merger and acquisition work, looking, working for sort of the, the big management consultancies and holding groups and helping them acquire off-market assets or helping agencies sell. Um, I'm handling the PR for Lord Sugar and his associated companies, which is something I've done for 20 years or so. And then sort of in my spare time, I'm doing some not-for-profit and charity work, working for people like the Prince's Trust, where I sit on their business launch group, um, working for Big Community Records, which is a record label that the um, COO of Google, Craig Fenton, set up to help black kids from poor socioeconomic backgrounds get a break in the music industry and other stuff sort of in between, keeping myself busy. Great. Well, I think that's the end of the podcast. Thank you very much. <laughs> no, um, uh, no, but actually, it's, it's really useful, actually. I mean, that's the first time, obviously, uh, that is your, your, I mean, that's PR for you, isn't it? I mean, um, most of the time we have to really struggle to get people to tell their stories in a very coherent way, but I guess that's kind of your job, isn't it? So you're quite good at it. <laughs> so um, so uh, when you, going back a little bit, um, so you, you were asked to to found to to become an entrepreneur basically alongside um, another entrepreneur at, at 26 do you think you would have done it any do you think at some point you would have set up your own business or do you think you really had to be shoved into it by by someone it's a good question i mean i think you never really feel ready for doing anything and there's always an excuse not to do something when i look back with hindsight i'm a firm believer that in a lot of ways the younger you are the less you have to lose in terms of, you know, your expenses are relatively low. It's unlikely when you're sort of young that you're going to have a, a family, kids to support, big mortgages. So, you know, that aspect gets taken away from you a little bit. I, I think I would have done it, but I don't know when. It took someone to sort of give me the push. And my dad was um, very entrepreneurial, always worked for himself, not in the marketing industry, but in a sort of sales type role and he'd always said to me you're never going to make proper money working for someone else and that sort of I think stuck in the back of my head but I don't I think it took someone else to push me into it at such a young age and I'm very grateful that they did but it probably would have happened at some stage but I was you know I think and I always say to people now you know when they say you know when's the right time should I do it shouldn't I do it there was definitely a benefit of me working for a couple of companies and having the ability to almost learn at their expense. You know, I was getting the chance to work with these huge global clients, um, given a lot of responsibility. And I think that experience that I'd built up, even though it was a relatively short period of time, stood me in good stead and it showed me how things should be done or, you know, in my mind and in a lot of cases, how things shouldn't be done. So that that was a pretty valuable experience. Mm. And was it a was it a smooth start when you when you both started out with Frank? I think it was a smooth start. Um, when I sort of reflected on the twenty years or so that 
it had been going when, when I stepped back, what I realized is that actually the first 11 or 12 years were consistent growth. And that almost sort of became the norm. Um, we started, you know, like a lot of startups, taking business from, from wherever we could. And our first couple of clients were very much sort of friends and family grown brother-in-law ran a shop fittings company called Shop Fittings Direct. Um, I had a school friend who'd set up a mail order teddy bear company called Telegram Teddies. And they were the sort of first two people to trust us. Um, and then a few months into the company, we had the opportunity to pitch for the Amstrad business, which was Lord Sugar's business at the time. And winning that pitch was sort of the first, I guess, person to trust us that we weren't related to. And like with any business, once you start to grow and build it, the, the clients build with it. And I think a year into the agency, we had the opportunity to pitch for the Brill Cream account. And that was, it was really the first major brand that we had the opportunity to go for. And we were up against some very, very well-established, very credible PR agencies. And we won that pitch. And for me, that was a real turning point. It was the point where it said to other brands, other clients, you know, good enough for these guys, they're good enough for us. And so that was a real hurdle to get over. But of course, you know, over the journey of the company, there's been ups and downs, good times, bad times. Um, and that's just part, you can't expect everything to always go smoothly. But I think that was really a part of what I enjoyed. You, you never really had the chance to get bored. It sounds like that was quite a quick jump from friends and family, Telegram Teddies to Amstrad. Was it really that quick or were there, was there a lot more in between? There wasn't a lot more in between. I mean, sometimes you need a bit of luck. And I think in this instance, um, Amstrad had had the same PR advisor for many, many years, a guy called Nick Hewer, who later went on to be... Um, He's Lord the guy on TV, right? The guy on TV, <laughs> on The Apprentice, and now host Countdown. Very so you, you replaced him as the VR advisor? Yeah. How come um, it wasn't you on The Apprentice? How come he managed to get that job? <laughs> I think, yeah, well, good luck. <laughs> I'm not sure I would have wanted that role. But Nick had sort of had a successful PR agency and had sold the agency and was retiring. And I don't know who it was, but someone had said, oh, you should check out these guys. They've got big agency background. They've just started mm. very hungry. We actually lost the pitch. Um, I think we tried so hard to impress the marketing director that we gave them something completely over elaborate in terms of, of what they actually needed. And they told us that and they said, yeah, we're going to go with another agency who just, you know, probably a bit more suited to what we actually need, something a bit more straightforward. Mm. Um, and we were gutted and we didn't want to let the opportunity pass. So probably the easiest way to describe it is to say we begged for the opportunity and <laughs> we really did almost get down on our hands and knees and pray for them to change their minds. And they did. I think they felt a bit sorry for us. They could see that hunger and that passion and that desire and they reversed their decision and gave us the business. So, but it was really that early in, in, a, in a meeting then how did, how did it all on the phone or, um, it was on the phone. I mean, I think we yeah. picked face to face and then they delivered the news and we sort of put the phone down and then basically sort of decided we weren't going to let this opportunity pass. It was, it was too good to be true. And we, we picked up the phone and said, look, please change your mind. And <laughs> they did. So 
is, I guess, a good lesson in never taking no for an answer. Yeah. Yeah. So when you first met uh, Graham, your business partner, he was the managing director of the company. And then obviously you went to becoming co-founders. What was that like as a relationship? Did it always, did it feel like you were resetting it from fresh there? Um, it, it was strange really, because yeah, Graham was my big boss. You know, He was the MD when I was doing work experience and, and I worked my way up relatively quickly. So by the time he left, I was an account director, but he was still, you know, the boss of the company. When the original plan when we started Frank was Graham was still running this dot-com and didn't plan to take an active involvement. He was going to take on this sort of chairman role and do it part-time, but I would be the one that would run the day-to-day. And actually what happened, there was the dot-com crash and his sort of £35 million valuation of his company never really saw fruition. But that combined with the fact I think he he always loved PR and he, he said to me from day one you know I, I miss being out of the PR world and then he ended up getting more involved but we always had sort of separate roles and our skill sets complemented one another so he would look after more the business side and the, the development of, of, of the company from a financial perspective and I would focus on the work and clients um, and obviously that that crossed over you know it was we both did bits of each, but those were our two sort of areas. And that sort of really stayed the same, actually, for most of our time working together. Um, is it, have you found it quite beneficial through the years working alongside other businesses and, and other entrepreneurs like Lord Sugar and, um, you know, other businesses? How much, how much learning, I mean, I suppose that's a good opportunity. You learn from lots, lots of different trades and lots of different um, industries how to how to run a business well I guess yeah I mean I think the skill of running a strong consumer PR agency or any PR agency that is a generalist agency is you do get to learn from other businesses other people and then you can apply those learnings and the ways of doing things to the benefit of other clients and to your own business Um, personally speaking you know I've always loved working with entrepreneurs and founders of businesses who are you know very different from dealing with a classically trained 24 year old assistant brand manager from Unilever or Procter and Gamble or Mars um they both have their their benefits and there's different styles and different ways of doing things but I love that passion of of someone whose business it is where every penny is coming out of their pocket with everything that you achieve for them, it's directly benefiting them. And just that, I guess the drive and the spirit that comes with being a founder, I've always, always enjoyed that. And especially now in this stage of my career, most of the people that I'm working with are, are all founders, shareholders of, of their own businesses. Um, and it can be tiring as well. You know, it's, it's relentless to with any client, but when it's, someone's baby and they're so close to it then it adds a whole different level of intensity but I like that I thrive off it and and yes as you said well you know I've learned lots and lots from the clients I've had over the years not least Lord Sugar. What have you learned from him? I've learned a lot from him um I think in terms of his communication style it's, it's very direct um He's very, very efficient, never puts off something today that, you know, doesn't necessarily need to be done immediately. Immediately, He likes to sort of clear his inbox, which I think is a good trait. 
He's very skilled at communicating with the media, not taking any shit, standing up for what he believes in. Um, but probably the thing that I've learned that I value the most is the way that he manages to balance his business life and his social life. And he's obviously achieved a great deal in life. Um, doesn't really need to work. He works because he loves it. But he manages his businesses alongside being a fantastic husband, father, grandfather. Um, and I really admire that. I think it's all too easy sometimes to get lost in work and be, mm. you know, not giving attention to the personal side of our life. And, and you know, he's got all the trappings of success, the boats, the planes, the homes across the world. And he enjoys that. But at the same time, you know, if I send an email to five people and he's one of them, I could bet you a hundred quid he'd be the first person to respond. Um, mm. And I don't quite know how he does it to this day, but I love that drive and, and just able to juggle stuff. Yeah. So do you, do you, do you think you're quite good at um, balancing business and personal interests as well? No. <laughs> <laughs> One of my greatest weaknesses. Um, you know, anyone who knows me will tell you that I'm very passionate. I put everything into my clients and doing a great job. And unfortunately, you know, sometimes that is to the detriment of prior getting my priorities wrong and time spent elsewhere. And I think one of the reasons why I decided for this shift in my career was to be able to have the opportunity to balance my life more. And when you run an agency, it doesn't matter how experienced you are, how long you've been doing it, it is a relentless job to do it properly. And it's something that I've loved every second of I never complained about it never you know didn't enjoy it um but there were the sort of missed opportunities to see your kids play football to go to the Christmas carol concert to drop them off at school in the morning all these sort of things that you know I missed too many of them and you don't get the chance to do those things again so you know what I promised myself in terms of setting up on my own is I would make that time for my family and I'm not good at it. I have to really work hard at it. Um, but I think I'm getting better at it. And, you know, as sad as it sounds, I kind of diarize, you know, when I'm, if I want to pick the kids up from school, which I do a couple of times a week, I put that in my diary and I protect it at all costs. And <clears throat> I've been quite good at that. And I, and I love doing it. And it's probably something that I, couldn't have done so easily when you know I had loads of staff and an office that was on the other side of town and yeah. you know, now it's much easier for me to do it but I have to I don't know force myself to do it is probably the wrong expression but I have to be as rigorous and planned in terms of making the space for other priorities as I do for work yeah what was it like when you took a step back from Frank then? Because you obviously worked there for 20 years and were minutely involved in the day-to-day. -day. That must have been a huge shift. Did, was the timing of that driven by you felt like it was just the right time for you to move on or because you felt like the people in the business and the business itself were ready to kind of flourish without yourself being there so, so much each day? It's a really good question. And it was... Thank you. <laughs> oh can i can i cut in actually because i've always told dan that i think a really good pr tip for any uh, any businessman is uh, when a journalist <laughs> like me asks them a question 
and they don't want to answer it, they, they should say, great question. And then the interviewer spends the next minute in their head going, yes, it was a good question, wasn't it? You yeah. zone out. <laughs> you can't, you, you, you miss the fact that they, have, they don't answer it. It's, well, that wasn't why I did it, but it was. No, no, no. Is that a good tip, though? Enough, it's something you learn in media training when you're doing interviews. It, what it does is it buys you a few seconds of time to think. Um, maybe, I, I don't think I, <laughs> in this instance, I needed a few seconds to think, but it's a technique that you'll see it in interviews. Now you're aware of it when you see people being interviewed. They will yeah. say, you know, Thanks for the question, really good question. And what it's actually doing is just, it's not designed to distract the interviewer, it's designed to just buy the person answering the question a bit more time. Yeah. So, it's a great technique. It really works on me every single time. I just know that I know it, I know that it's that it's for buying time or for flattering. And I just, but still, I just think, yeah, it was a great question, wasn't it? Because it kind of is. <laughs> it is a great question if it, because, you know, if, you, if it's a question someone needs to think about, it is a good question. That's what I yeah. think. Anyway. Yeah, no, right. what was the question so, next we've really well, bought you some the there. Was, you know the timing and why and i think it was a combination of everything really it 20 years felt like like a good milestone as stupid as it sounds but mm. i didn't want to do it at 19 or mm. i wanted to, it was a good round number it was the agency was and is in a good place it was part of a succession plan um, that we'd been working on for a couple of years. It wasn't an overnight thing. Mm. We were doing really, really good work. And I, and I always felt I wanted to step back at a time when the agency was in its best possible place to be, um, which I did. And so it, it was really a combination of everything, mm. I think. But it was hard. It was easier. It's been easier than I thought, maybe because... Um, what I couldn't predict was that a few months after sort of agreeing to do it with, with the board and the other shareholders, that there was going to be a global pandemic. Yeah, of course. Literally, you know, at the time I was doing it. And, that, and I shat myself, really, once that happened, because I was like, wow, I've had all this time to choose my moment, and I've done it at the worst possible time I could ever do. Probably for me and the agency, but we decided we would stick to it. You know, once you've made your mind up on something, you've done it. And you so for a moment, you did think maybe I should just come back for another year then? Well, I was thinking because I knew it was happening, but we'd, we'd agreed that we wouldn't announce it. The timings were we were going to announce it in April and I was going to sort of actually step back in May. But we decided all this at the start of the year. We just, you know, it was a closely kept conversation and secret. And mm. we discussed, do you think we should postpone it and leave it for a bit? And then just came to the conclusion pretty quickly from both sides. You know, once you made your mind up, you've made your mind up. And, yeah. you know, actually it was great timing for me. It, I think it enabled me to have a fresh start whilst everyone was working from home from a very selfish perspective, there was, you know, there was a lot of shit that any agency has to deal with around something like this, um, not me, in terms of a pandemic and the dealing with people, the dealing with clients and all the issues that I kind of didn't have to do that, which I was quite pleased about. Mm. Um, 
and what it meant from the perspective. When I left, I hadn't formulated a plan of exactly what I wanted to do. I knew what I didn't want to do, and I knew the kind of things I was good at and not so good at. And then what actually happened was I announced that I was leaving and I did a post on LinkedIn, which was sort of 20 things on my 20 years mm. of time, um, which was a bit of a trip down memory lane, but also you know, designed to showcase, I guess, some of my achievements and some of the more memorable things that had happened during my journey. And then the phone started to ring. And what was really interesting is people were phoning me who were, had opportunities and wanted my help. So I wasn't having to deal with like any agency, not just Frank, but with the legacy of clients that were in the events industry or the travel and tourism industry or retail that were just having the most shocking time and looking at how they could, you know, adapt and pivot. I was dealing, you know, most of the people phoning me were tech clients, online retail, fast growth companies that were like, look, there's a shitty thing going on in the world, but actually it's provided mm. opportunity for us. Can you help maximize this opportunity? So it, it worked out really well, even though I did have moments of wondering whether this was the worst decision in the history of me making decisions. <laughs> um, I'd be really interested to know how, um, if you have any observations about how the the PR industry, I suppose, has changed over the 20 or 20 plus years that you've been in it. Um, yeah, any, any sort of observation would be really interesting. I mean, it's a really good question. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> there's, um, there's, I mean, in some ways it's changed like beyond imagination, you know, in terms of tech, to put it into perspective and to make myself sound like a complete dinosaur. When I started out in PR, you know, there, there was no email there was no internet, no social media. So the way in which news disseminates and travels is quicker and faster than ever. And the technology that's come into play has transformed what you're able to do creatively. I think the key skills of PR and being able to communicate effectively are exactly the same. It's just the techniques that are different. I think in terms of the world in general, there's more of a lens on corporate purpose and social responsibility. Consumers now have direct access to celebrities and to brands who don't necessarily need to use the media as a third party. Um, but actually the core skills and the principles of what makes a great PR, what makes a great PR campaign, what makes a great PR agency are pretty much the same as they always have been. I mean, the, the thing that has always kept me excited and infused is the ever-changing nature of the media, of technology, of the power of journalists, and, and all this kind of stuff. You know, it's 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 evolving at such a fast pace mm. that it, it just provides you with this challenge of how you're going to create the objective that you're trying to achieve in a new and a different way. Mm, so, yeah. So yeah, it, it, it has. I mean, it's a completely different industry than the one I joined, but better and more exciting. I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's weird how how um, it must be slightly weird how um, how easy it is to for a brand to do some kind of a you know uh, a PR stunt now. Like all you have to do is do a tweet, and it can go all around the world. Like, did you see on Friday? Um, 
this really tickled me, but obviously, you know, Donald Trump did his tweet saying, stop the count. So yeah. Did either of you see the Southampton yeah. football club yeah. tweeted, stop the count because they were top of the Premier League? And I just thought that's amazing. And I haven't looked it up, but I bet that, I bet Southampton is now, that tweets on news stories across the world. It's... Yeah. I mean, the immediacy is something that has always, like, it's something that I love. And actually, when I first wanted to go into advertising before I got into PR, and the thing I realised when I did work placement within a PR agency is the pace is much quicker. And, you know, with an ad agency, you know, traditional ad campaign can be months in the planning. You, know, you can work on a John Lewis Christmas ad, you know, pretty much from December the 26th through <laughs> to the following Christmas. And whereas with PR, it is so immediate. And when I started out in PR, you know, that, that immediacy was seeing something in the papers the next day. You can have an idea pitch it to the media next day it's in a newspaper and I was always impatient I'd be the one that you know, if you used to go to King's Cross station the first editions of the papers would come out at like 11 at night when they sort of rolled fresh off the, the press and I could never wait till the next morning I'd you know if I had a big story I'd be camped out at King's Cross you know waiting for the first papers to come now that immediacy is seconds I mean like you say with that Southampton example, you know, one of Frank's big clients is Burger King, who's well known for their sort of immediacy and their topicality and for brands being part of popular culture, a big way to do that is to tap in and what we call sort of agenda nearing, you know, how do you commandeer the news agenda? You look at what's going on and how do you make your brand a part of it? And that requires really quick thinking and reacting to what's going on in real time and that for me is a brilliant part of the job you know i love the longer term strategic planning and the kind of gray hair brainy stuff but i also just you, you can't help but love that kind of immediacy of just coming up with an idea pressing a button and it's out there but it's also dangerous you know that immediacy mm. as much as it can go right can go wrong and that causes it's a big industry in, in the PR world is dealing with poorly thought out brand communication. And I will always say, you know, just because channels exist doesn't mean that you need to use them. It doesn't mean that you need to share every sort of waking thought you have that goes into your head. There needs mm. to be some level of strategic thought that goes into it. So, but it is a great part of the job. Brilliant part of it. I'd love to ask you a question about um, PR techniques as we're on the topic. Um, I often marvel at the fact that the entrepreneurs and the startups I work with, the, the real stories tend to be very, very messy, very complicated. They don't make nice narratives. But then when you read about successful startups in the press, it's these very easily kind of canned, like very simple narratives that you really remember over and over again. Um, to what extent is that good storytelling? And to what extent are some of those stories simply a little bit fabricated? Um, I mean, good storytelling shouldn't be fabricating, but it should be simplifying a story in the way that's easy to remember and easy to relate to. And I think, you know, you're a founder of a business, you can relate to this. When you've got your own business, there's a temptation to tell everyone everything. And you're very proud of, literally every single development in the history of your company you know i remember when we started frank and 
our credentials were so detailed because we didn't want to miss anything out, you know, almost to the point where an electrician had come in and sort of fitted four new light sockets. <laughs> we wanted to tell people because that was, I'm exaggerating, but yeah. a good PR person will be able to take the bits of the story that are interesting, focus on what are the USPs and the things that set you apart and filter out the stuff that whilst you might be proud of, you might think are interesting, aren't necessarily interesting mm. for other people. I mean, PR should always have integrity and be truthful and you should never lie. Mm. But that doesn't mean you can't craft a story to tell the picture that you want to paint. And that's what a good PR person will do. And then what about if that person came in and said, well, these four stories weren't very interesting uh, when they happened separately, but if we sort of told them as if they had all happened on the same day, that would be interesting. Would that be uh, across the line? I think, look, you know, there's so many ethical boundaries within PR. And, you know, for me, my moral compass is, you know, never to do anything illegal or immoral or, but if something, you know, it, to use your example, if a few things happened over a course of a few months and you kind of create the story that it happened in a day, it's not really doing any major harm. But I would always say be open, honest, tell the truth. There's nothing worse than getting caught out. But if it's something that's pretty harmless and innocuous and just helps paint a story, then I think that's okay, um, in my opinion. I was like, Dan's just getting some free PR advice here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I always find it so interesting just because like the real life stories, it's just like, well, we tried this and it didn't work. So we changed a bit and then it did work a little bit and it's so complicated. And then when you go on the website or whatever, it's all like, I had this brainwave and then I did it. And it was, it's all like so neat. And you just think I've never seen it work that neat well, in happened. real life. You know, I always felt like running an agency there's always this temptation to sort of compare how you're doing to other people. It's natural, mm. natural in any business, but um, you should never compare someone else's showreel with your behind the scenes video. And what I mean by that is, you know, there is no business that is everything's a dream. It's perfectly smooth, all through mm. the place, you know, there's always shit, but you you package up your story and you create a showreel that tells the world your story in terms of how you want to be perceived. And that's how you will be perceived. But don't ever sit there sort of reading other agency stories, looking at their showreels and looking at their success and thinking, Jesus, they've had it easy. You know, we've, you know, it just doesn't work like that. And I think people, consumers see through that. You know, if you polish things too much, Mm. And it won't come across as being authentic and genuine and, you know, which is, can be extremely damaging. So I think showing vulnerability and not being afraid to talk about your mistakes and where things have gone wrong is not an issue. Um, I look at a lot of sort of, especially in the tech world, sort of young founders, entrepreneurs, and I do feel like sometimes they document their journeys a little bit too much. Um, and it seems to be a technique that works, but I, I always felt running a company, you know, certain things you want to keep private. You, 
you don't need to share them with with the world but i think mm. now i see a lot of younger ceos founders just literally sharing every waking thought and it does seem to work for a certain generation but for yeah. me certain things that you just keep private and they almost make a virtue of it sometimes is that what you mean where they say you know normally i wouldn't share this but i want to be so open that yeah. i am going to share it and people all jump in and be like yeah good on you yes that kind of thing yeah and i think maybe that's an age thing i mean it's you know i've never been afraid to talk about the things that i've copped up as much as the things that i've succeeded in it's not i don't feel embarrassed or ashamed but at the same time i don't think i'd be wanting to document those minute by minute um, I kind of save it up for when I, when I need to or want to talk about it. <laughs> okay, Andrew, um, I'm conscious we're running out of time. Um, so the way we finish our interviews is we do a quick, uh, a quick fire round of questions. Uh, so we've got six questions and yeah, hopefully the, well, the answer is usually quite short, but maybe quite long in some cases. The first <laughs> question comes from me, which, and it's quite in line with what you were saying actually just then. I was wondering what the, um, the biggest telling off uh, you've ever had from a client has been or maybe telling off is the wrong word but I mean I guess biggest confrontation with a client where they've said you Frank have done something wrong here um, and it's not not good I mean definitely had a few bollockings over our time I I've always taken bollocking that's the word yeah <laughs> <laughs> I will always admit to something that we've we've done wrong or if something hasn't gone as well as I hoped it had, I will always try and sort of tell someone that before they tell us. I've never been one to paper over the cracks and pretend something's great if it isn't. And not every campaign can be a great success. I've had, I remember having a bollocking from Lord Sugar once, which was quite a scary experience when I missed an important email. Um, and I also remember an instance once with a client when they went so mad about something and we really couldn't figure out what it was they were annoyed about, but they were so annoyed. We were too scared to actually ask them because we thought they might explode. Um, but, you know, look, agencies have up and downs. There's always going to be clients that are dissatisfied. I've always found the best approaches to, to own up and admit and to try and find a solution to make things better. Um, but fortunately, I think there's definitely been more praise and recognition and well done than they have kind of disappointments and bollockings. Okay. Um, what was the best party or work social events that you've been to? There's been lots. I mean, the early part of my career was particularly outstanding because there was parties every single night. Um, and, you know, I'd be... Uh, sort of London Fashion Week events, BAFTAs, British Fashion Awards, all, all sorts of, of things. And it was a great, great experience. There was a really early party when I first started Lynn Franks, which was a completely wild, wild agency. Um, and I was quite innocent, sort of come straight from university, really don't know, just quite naive. And there was the what became the legendary white party where everything was white and there was like these sort of dwarfs walking around with big silver plastic <laughs> on their heads and like, <laughs> it was crazy um and i just didn't know what to make of it all it was it was mad but i think you know one of the perks of 
working in this industry is you do get to go to some great parties, some great memorable events. Not so much anymore. I'd rather be at home, you know. Mm. At, what, at what age did you um, did you start did you start to think parties are fun, but you know, EastEnders <laughs> is on or <laughs> whatever it is you like to watch? I think I guess I got to an age where you couldn't stay up till sort of three in the morning and then still function the next day properly. Um, How old is that? I, I feel like Will is asking because he's worried, like, God, I hope I'm old enough for this to apply to me now. Yeah, that's true, actually, yeah. I sort of felt I was, you know, going to all these parties and work, especially in the old days, was a massive part of my social life. So lots of my best friends I was working with, and it was just, like, insane. And we'd be sitting there kind of sipping a pint of beer and there'd be Kate Moss and Naomi Campbell and the Spice Girls and Prince Harry like sat on the next table or something. And we, we weren't really a part of it. You know, we were, it was more about being able to go home and tell my mates who were estate agents or bankers and in the city and earning five times as much as me. Yeah, you might earn loads of money, but I was sat next to Kate Moss last night. And then eventually the novelty of that sort of wears off and it got to the point where you know I'd just do what I wanted to do and wouldn't feel the the need to accept every single invite and go to every single event the agency was doing but I'm glad that I did do it for a considerable number of years and still do to this day you know go to things here and there because I've just got so many amazing stories and memories and anecdotes that I think it will last me for the rest of my life. <laughs> uh, what's your biggest phobia? What's my biggest fear? fear? Biggest phobia or fear, yeah. I don't think I really have one. It's a, a good question. Um, <laughs> That's a good answer. Genuine <laughs> fears. I mean, look, everyone has a bit of a fear of failure. Everyone has a little bit of imposter syndrome. You know, I definitely had that when I was stepping back from Frank, you know, could I make a living on my own without other people around me and agencies, but not phobias. I mean, generally, I think to do this job, you have to be pretty resilient and not get too high on the highs and too low on the lows. And, you know, there's consistently good and bad things that happen to varying degrees and you can't let anything good or anything bad impact you too much. You just have to, try and keep going so I've never had a phobia really about anything it doesn't mean that I'm cocky and super sure of myself of course I have uncertainties and question myself but nothing that's prevented me from doing anything or kept me awake at night for more than you know one night at a time mm. right uh, you mentioned um, you have enough anecdotes for the rest of your life what's your best anecdote totally set myself up for that <laughs> great question thank you there was a very funny story i mean there's loads there's loads but um one of my favorite stories was when i worked at, at lim franks i was one of a very small number of straight men and every year we used to do the british fashion awards and it would be every pr person would be allocated a celebrity to look after um, and basically there was this sort of unofficial ranking system that the more senior you were 
if you were straight man, you got first choice of the female celebrity. So I think I've been doing it for two, three years and I was pretty high up in the single male ranking selection process. And I, I ended up with Helena Christensen as the person that I was looking after, who was at the height of her fame. And a guy who worked for me, um, Simon, he was lower down the order and he had um, Kelly Brook as his pick, which was still pretty good, not at sort of supermodel level. Um, so I had to, basically my job was to go and pick up Helena Christensen and then look after her for the evening when she was presenting an award and make sure that she was okay. Um, so I went to the hotel where she was staying to pick her up, phoned up to the room, receptionist sort of said, she's not ready yet. Can you go up to, to her bedroom? So, <laughs> okay. So I go up to her bedroom and I'm sitting there and she's like, on the I'm sitting like, she said, just sit on the edge of the bed and she's half dressed and we're chatting. And I'm like, what, <laughs> what I was saying before, like, these are the moments that you think I'm going to dine out on this forever. I'm in Helena Christensen's bedroom. And um, so I, my mate, Simon, I texted him and sort of said, fucking hell, I'm in Helena Christensen's bedroom and she's in her underwear. He was at the time um, in the back of a taxi with Kelly Brook and Kelly Brook turned around to, to him and said like, oh, you must have been so pleased that you got to choose me, that you're with me tonight and you're looking after me. And he went, yeah, but my, mate, <laughs> my boss is in Helena Christensen's bedroom and she's in her underwear. And she turned around to him and said, yeah, but I bet Helena Christensen doesn't flash her tits at him and pulled up her top. <laughs> no way. And I think the two of us have dined out on that story for many many years but it was <laughs> loads of stories like that you know it was just bizarre you just found yourself in these circumstances that to anyone else sounds a bit unbelievable and mm. almost like made it up but they, they just happened consistently week in week out so it was a, a brilliant start to my career then I had to sort of put my head down and do some real work. <laughs> um, do you prefer Boris Johnson or Joe Biden? That question until until today, or well, every other interview has been Boris Johnson or Donald Trump, but now we've had to change it to Joe Biden. I don't think I know enough about Joe Biden to really kind of comment. From what I've seen and over the last couple of weeks of the election, you know, he's, I think he comes across as someone that has re really, really good moral compass. I think he's done a great job of delivering empathy to, you know, pretty divided nation. He's calm, he's reassuring. And I think that's what the world needs at the moment. There is a part of me that will kind of miss the Donald Trump show. I mean, it's <laughs> to want him to be elected necessarily, but that I, I did, I actually really admired his communication skills in a lot of ways, the way he uses Twitter to control the narrative, to deflect away from other issues, even the way that, you know, as at this moment in time, I'm not sure when this podcast will go out, but he's still sort of refusing to admit defeat, 
um, using Twitter to help spread his message of improper behaviour and illegal voting and whatever it is he's going on about. There's something that's quite admirable in, in that quality. I mean, as I say, it's not a reason to be elected. I think, you know, Boris Johnson, as a communicator, is less strong, is, is the simplest way to put it. You know, he, he, he really did win the hearts and minds of the nation, I think, when he was mayor of London and the whole kind of bumbling, eccentric, buffoon style of mm. communicating. But, I mean, look, I don't envy his job. I think it's one of the most difficult jobs in the world to be doing at the moment, and it's very easy to be sat in opposition and saying, we'd do this, we'd do that. But I think you can look at his communication style and think to yourself, you could be doing things with a lot more direction and leadership and, and force. Um, that, that's where I think he's, he's lacking at the moment, at a time when people really, really need that clear direction and strong leadership. He just seems to be sort of failing a little bit in that aspect. But as I said, it's, it's not a job I would wish on my worst enemy. Is in a completely no-win situation, but sometimes he doesn't help himself. So mm. I don't know. I don't know whether you can compare um, Trump to Biden. I think it's a good question to maybe ask in a year's time when Biden has sort of spent a year in office. It's, I think when you're in opposition, it's very easy to criticise the person that's in the seat of power and talk about how you would have done stuff differently and behaved in a different way when you're actually there it's, it's a whole nother matter very diplomatic um okay last one favorite possession favorite possession do your children count uh if you consider them to be a possession <laughs> um i think I mean, one of the favorite things i've ever received um well, it's a bit of a long and boring story. Um, so, but your job is to make it an exciting story. That's exciting. So, <laughs> um, it goes back when I was 13, and I, I'm Jewish, had a bar mitzvah, and you have a first dance with your mum, sort of like you would at a wedding. And my mum chose for the first dance song, Every Loser Wins which was a song by Nick Berry from EastEnders. And all my friends thought it was hilarious that um, she'd chosen the song Every Loser Wins. And it <laughs> kind of remains part of piss-taking for years and years to come. And when I, Frank sold the agency when we were sort of seven years in, we sold the business and it was a great deal and, you know, a great success for me personally and for the agency. And one of my friends bought me a fr the framed seven-inch single of Every Loser Wins. <laughs> wrote on the back, you know, not such a loser now, well done. Not oh, loser. that's nice. And that, for me, it was one of the most thoughtful things that anyone had ever done. And I don't know if that is my favourite possession, but it's a bit it's a good story. saying to you, my car or, yeah. or something. So, yeah, definitely one of my... I'm very... I keep everything. I've got memorabilia from every single client I've ever worked with. I keep items and I, I'm just a real hoarder. Don't throw anything away. So I love anything that sort of evokes a happy memory and that's definitely up there with one of the best presents. 
amazing. Man. Well done. I feel like we, I like, we like... got to talk about our pet topics. Your pet topic is the question of <laughs> just saying, firstly, great question. You've always wanted to ask an interviewer about that. And I've always wanted to ask one about the ethical nature of lying slightly in stories. So we both got our, our moment in the sun there. Yeah, I'd say we skewered him to an extent. That was quite good. good we term. skewered him. <laughs> I really enjoyed the anecdote about um, the breast flashing as well. That might make a good finale. I was almost loath to ask any more quickfire questions after that. It just felt like such a good moment to end it on. Oh, we can make that the finale, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah definitely potatoes. Um, any other thoughts? Well, can I ask you a personal question? Yes. How pissed off would you be if I told you that I didn't record our intro earlier? Um, no, I wouldn't be too annoyed. Okay, that's good. Oh, I know that I know that you didn't because you oh, started good. recording. But were you quick time recording before then? No. Oh, wow, okay. Well, I, don't think, I, don't think, I don't think there was too much. In that. I mean, it was good as always, but we'll not, just need to do another fun. brief uh, intro at some point, I guess. Well, should we just do it now? Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> who we speaking to this week? This week we're speaking to Andrew Block. Uh, he is known as the co-founder of Frank, which is a successful PR agency. Uh, his notable clients include uh, Lord Sugar, uh, Amstrad. Um, who else? Oh, the Meerkat from Compare the Meerkat was one of their clients at one point. Brew um, cream. <laughs> I'm not going to list them all, but yeah, successful PR guru recently uh, taking a step back from managing the business. Guru, nice word. Well done. <laughs> well, I'm really you. looking forward to speaking to him, Dan. So um, let's do it. Yeah. Have you ever met him before? No, I haven't. How did you arrange this podcast? I'd rather not comment. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, I don't think we've got anything other. Is is it worth commenting on that? I don't know, uh, I thought it was a funny story, but maybe it's Okay, not. yeah, sure, okay, I'll, I'll tell the story again. For the third time, I'll tell you the story, <laughs> um, which was that I was in touch with Andrew Block because actually he um, he helped set up our interview with Scarlett Allen Horton last time around. Um, mm, the runner I remember it fondly. got an investment from Lord Sugar. And uh, after I'd done that, I thought I'd probably done enough to, to merit asking him if we could then interview uh, Lord Sugar. And he said, well, he went off and possibly asked him well he i mean yes he went off and asked him and he said no i believe um and then andrew block sent me a list of other people who we could interview for our entrepreneur podcast there's a list of about five people and at the bottom of the list was him himself and i thought that's that's quite admirable you know very uh, very ballsy so yeah, I think he'd be really interesting. And actually PR people are quite interesting. So I'm yeah. really excited about speaking to him and I'm really intrigued to see if he'll be able to tell us any good stories about supermodels or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm really interested as well. And I quite like the boozy nature of that. Do you think after hearing this, a lot of other PR people are going to start listing themselves <laughs> on the bottom of emails? Mm, that's a good point. We'll have to discuss it with Luke. And if the answer is yes, then we might have to edit this bit out because um, we don't want to, <laughs> to, to compromise our integrity. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Yeah. Great. Well, I'm really looking forward to this interview. As am I. Should we leave it there? Yes. Okay. Have fun, Dan. Mm-hmm.